I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the London Review Bookshop. My name's Laura Saw, and I look after the events here. Um, tonight, I'll be looking after the conversation between our guest speakers, Olivia Lang and Jean Sprackland, though I'm sure the conversation will mean very little looking after from me. Um, introductions first. Jean Sprackland is a much-admired poet. Um, she's a Ford Prize, T.S. Eliot and Whitbread Prize shortlistee and winner of the Costa Poetry Award for Tilt, her third collection um, and most recent. Water runs through many of the poems in Tilt and in her previous collection, Hard Water. And now, with her first prose book, Strands, she shows us the source from which these watery images come. Ainsdale Sands, a stretch of wild estuarial beaches in between Blackpool and Liverpool that she's been walking for 20 years. Nicholas Murray, in a lovely review in The Independent last weekend, um, called this new book well-contextualised, sharply observed, clued up, environmentally aware and deeply researched. It's also witty and fun and absolutely fascinating in the finds that it holds up to the lights for us to see. Um, on this day, I think nearly, um, three years ago, uh, writer and critic and deputy book editor of The Observer, Olivia Lang, had just completed her week-long walk from source to sea along the River Ouse. Her account of the journey into the river interweaves biography, history, nature writing and memoir, and it's a genuinely beautiful book. Um, here's Philip Hawes' compliment to it. There is real delight in this debut. By turns, lyrical, melancholic and exultant, to the river just makes you want to follow Olivia Lang all the way down to the sea. <laughs> I'm not embarrassing. Um, so tonight we'll hear a short reading from both Jean and Olivia to give you a taste of the books or to, to revive your memories if you've already read them. Um, and then they'll talk together um, with some input from me, I suppose, for, for half an hour or so. Um, and then we'll throw the discussion open to the audience. So do think about being ready with your questions and comments. Um, I think it's Olivia first, so let me pass over. First, um, join me in saying thank you and welcome. I'm going to read, I'm going to read a section from towards the end of the book. So this is the story of a, of a walk along 42 miles of the river in which Virginia Woolf drowned to pick out on its most depressing aspect. There are lots of jolly things about it too. Um, and this, this is after I've come out of Rodmel, which was the Wolf's village. Um, it was Leonard who was on my mind that morning. After Virginia died, he returned to London and stayed for a time in a block of flats in Clifford's Inn. It was full of people, as a hive is full of bees, and he found the compression of lives unbearable, and so returned to the bombed house in Mecklenburg Square and lived there like a squatter, though there were no ceilings or windows, the roof was unsound, and the rooms were contaminated with a litter of soot and rubble. I got my loneliness and silence all right, he wrote years later, but I have experienced few things more depressing in my life than to live in a badly bombed flat 
with a windows boarded up during the Great War. It was around this time that the bomb sites of the city began to fill with flowering weeds that grew in great profusion among the mangled churches and destroyed streets. The pyrophile Rose Bay Willow Herb, which is known also as fireweed for its ability to colonise cleared ground, each single plant dispensing somewhere in the region of 80,000 almost weightless seeds. Budlier, beloved by butterflies for its honeyed scent, Atlas Poppy, gallant soldiers, dandelion, Canadian fleabane, Oxford ragwort, which grew first on the ash-strewn slopes of Mount Etna and was introduced into the 16th century, introduced in the 16th century to Oxford Botanic Garden, from where it escaped and headed south by way of the railways. London is gayest, where she has been the most blitzed, a New York newspaper reported in 1944, adding that the willow herb sweeps across this pockmarked city and turns what might have been scars into flaming beauty. It wasn't the first time the city had flowered from its own ruin. London Rocket, Cicimbria Mirio, which the Bedouins smoke to cure chest infections, is said to have begun to grow in abundance in the wake of the Great Fire of 1666, when the city's core was gutted by flames, though later it became very rare, returning centuries later, when the Blitz opened up the pastures of waste ground again, the weed rising up in whales of colour between the ribbands of shattered walls. These chance recurrences, mark them. All times are not the same time, but they are all going towards the same end. The London rocket returns in our cities as a clock returns to midnight. The Rose Bay willow herb swells up through the ruins of law courts and cathedrals. The dandelion marches across battlefields and infiltrates the gardens of mansions. Gallant soldiers, Oxford ragwort, Atlas poppy. These weeds have come and will come again, time immemorial, time without end. It is as well to remember this, for humans believe, against all evidence, in stasis, though the history of the world does clearly testify that it is rot and regeneration that will be our lot. to read an excerpt from this book which is uh, about a very small stretch of coast in the northwest of England. Um, for those who know the northwest coast, it's I used Formby Point and Southport Pier as my two bookends. And it's about the great variety of things that I found there in the course of my walks on that beach. And they vary, they, they are a mixture of man-made and natural things. Um, so the book opens and closes with two things which are, which are sort of more permanent features of that shore. Um, ships which come and go out of the sand, wrecked ships. And uh, prehistoric footprints which are being revealed by the tide and then washed away. And in between there's a, a variety of other things, many of them brought in on the tide. I've chosen perhaps one of the least glamorous finds to read about this evening. This chapter's called The Underworld. 
Spring tides have spring cleaned the beach. The rubble of the tide line, which was heaped high when I was here last week, has all gone, swept back into the sea to be washed and mixed and sorted again. For those cast-offs, the journey is never over and there is no such thing as home. At the very top of the beach, there's a neat curb cut into the foot of the dunes by the last tide. The sand is smooth and clean as a polished floor. Three or four horse boxes are parked near the beach entrance, and racehorses from Aintree are exercising, their galloping hooves thundering on the new-made surface. As the tide recedes, buoys are exposed, most of them homemade out of old plastic drums and petrol cans. Each is tethered by a fraying length of orange or green plastic rope to a stake hammered into the sand in the intertidal zone. Between and around the boys are tiny replicas, bright green floats lying stranded, some broken loose, others still moored to the sand by a long thread. These are egg masses laid by paddle worms. The eggs are more frequently seen than the worms themselves, which live under stones or in muddy sand at low water. They lay their eggs in these rounded masses, anchoring them either to seaweed or in sand. Amongst weed, they're well camouflaged, but exposed on the beach, they're very noticeable. They dot the shining surface, almost luminous in their greenness, like blobs of alien goo spilt from a low-flying spaceship. There are several distinct species of paddleworm, and paddleworms are just one in a host of families of worm species which inhabit the beach. Flatworms, ribbonworms, sludgeworms, bristleworms, catworms, scaleworms, fanworms, tubeworms. There are hundreds of species, millions of individuals, burrowing under the surfaces of our beaches, riddling the mud with holes and tunnels. Theirs is the secret life of the beach. Sand may look inert, but in fact it's seething with industry. We can only guess at the detail of that hidden world as we crouch and examine the scribble of worm casts along the water's edge. Perhaps the best known of marine worms is the lugworm. At low tide, there's often a fisherman or two with buckets and waders digging furiously. He waits for a wave to wash in, and as it pulls back, he heals the spade into the wet sand and digs away as if his life depended on it. It looks manic behaviour, puzzling to the uninitiated. I followed one man to try and get a closer look at what, closer look at what he was doing, but no sooner had he dug a hole and chucked something in the bucket than he was off, moving a few yards along, digging again, moving on. It was like watching an opportunist thief trying the door handles of parked cars, testing and passing on to the next, quick and stealthy. Lugworms live in U-shaped burrows under the sand. If you want to dig them out, you have to look for the characteristic cast on the surface and for a tiny blowhole or feeding depression nearby. Then you dig between the two with your spade and hope for the best. A few brisk cuts of sand should bring the worm to the surface and you pick it up and throw it into your bucket. It's hard physical work, but serious anglers swear by it. These are dedicated hunters, going after the bait with the same energy and determination they show in pursuing the prey itself. 
these devotees don't think much of the dried or frozen worms you can buy ready packaged. Fresh lug is the real thing. That's what really fetches the fish, especially the cod. Once you've collected your bait, the next challenge is to keep it alive for as long as possible. A photograph in an angling magazine shows one recommended method. The worms are spread in an old cat litter tray, layered with newspaper and kept in the fridge. Other, more conventional refrigerated goods are clearly visible. A pot of yoghurt, a tub of margarine. I imagine this practice may not be very popular with other members of the household. The next photograph, in which a live worm is threaded on a baiting needle, oozing blood onto a kitchen chopping board, could well constitute evidence in the divorce courts. Cod may love them, but they're not the only ones. Seabirds feast on marine worms, just as blackbirds eat earthworms in the garden. They're a staple of the oyster catcher's diet, and sandpipers are partial to them too. Gulls have famously varied tastes, happy to scavenge dead fish and crabs on the beach, as well as hoovering up chips and bits of old sandwich left by picnickers. But they are very fond of worms and other invertebrates. And given the variety of species living here, they can afford to be choosy. Some worms can be spotted easily, especially on shores where there's more shelter in the way of rocks or seaweed. They range from a thin red type, like the licorice laces I used to buy from the sweet shop on the way to school, to a short squat variety, scaled and warty, which rolls up like a woodlouse if you try and touch it. But most of them will never see, except in the pages of reference books. Their ways are close to us, their true elements mud and water rather than air. Their visible signs are the delicate structures they leave on the surface. The neatly coiled cast of the black lug, the raggedly frilled tube of the sand mason. The old English word worm or serpent was also used to mean dragon, and fearsome worms terrorised people from Lambton to Cornwall. One of them, known as the Nooker or Nikor, was a water-dwelling species. In Beowulf, there are references to these creatures swimming in the sea and basking on the cliffs as Beowulf passes by on his way to the mere to confront Grendel. Their relatives in the world of marine worms may be very much smaller, but seen through a microscope, even some of our own species look quite monstrous. Some are armed with spines, hooks and horns, some have tentacles, others multiple pairs of eyes. If, like Alice, I drank a potion and shrank, small enough to slip not down a rabbit hole, but into the nicor hoose of one of these creatures, I'd be in for a pretty terrifying experience. Like a cosmic wormhole, it might feel like a shortcut through space-time, whisking me faster than the speed of light from one reality to another. And that's probably how it feels to be a lugworm, dug violently from your lair and thrown in a bucket, your only future, the fridge, the baiting needle, and the spear-sharp teeth of a cod. Thanks both for those readings, really great, really gave us a great flavour of the, of the two books. Um, to kick off the conversation, I think I'd like to just launch straight in there with, um, with water. 
and um, River versus Sea. We've got a book about beaches and to the river. It's a bit blunt, but... but Shall I start? Um, yes. Yeah, because you begin your book, I'm Haunted by Waters, but for you it's very particularly rivers rather than... It is, it is rivers. I mean, I, I love, I live by the sea, I love being by the sea, but there was something about making a journey following a river and using that as a way of moving through layers of time that I found very compelling. It was a very compelling journey for me. But then I'm very interested in the fact that Jean seems to have done the same thing with the sea, that there, it's not static at all and there's that sense of movement. She's always finding things from one place that have come from somewhere completely different and that have come through time. So I don't think it's that one water source actually has different qualities so much as that that was the one that I just felt a very strong sort of pull to be beside. I'm sure it's partly accident. I mean, actually, my book's not so much about the sea, it's about the beach. Mm. Um, The sea sort of happens to be there. But... uh, some people will perhaps have recognised from my accent that I come from the Midlands, so I come from a very landlocked place. And in fact, the appeal of living by the sea never wore off for me. The novelty never wore off. I just couldn't believe my luck <laughs> being able to go down there and walk and having all that space. There's something about the sense of mm-hmm. vast skies and vast space to move around in, which I think mm-hmm. uh, people, who, people who were brought up on the coast maybe take for granted but is actually a very special thing and uh, but I, I'm certainly not immune to the charm of rivers I, yeah. you, you both talk I think a bit about the, the shiftingness of, of, of waters and the way that they mm. um, uh, reveal things that have been concealed and, um, and how that relates to time so um, what I think Olivia you write the earth hoards its treasures but a river is more shifting relinquishing its possessions haphazardly which is a beautiful way of putting it and, um, and you mentioned Ariel and the Tempest, the sea change. So mm-hmm. I wonder if that's something that's... Because it strikes me as well, they're both boundaries too. So there's that sense of liminality and that you're crossing over into something else, you're coming to the end of a human realm. Mm. There are all these different sorts of life living there. But then, as you say, that it just figures so nicely because water is always relinquishing things. Yes, I particularly noticed that sentence actually when I was reading your mm. book because it seemed it, it really struck a chord with me in my in my experience of of the beach and of the tide bringing objects, relinquishing objects. Posting objects out to you. Yes, it goes in both directions. You can, uh, yes. Um, You know, people throw messages into the sea, throw things into the sea in the hope that they will be found as well. Mm. But I think think that's, you know, that's true of, this is is moving water, this is sort of living stuff. Mm. And it carries along a great kind of rich diversity of, of, of human stuff with it, as well as the animals and plants that are in it and mm. that's the that's that's the mystery and the, the joy of it really and I think that's why I've never felt particularly drawn to lakes that there's right. sea and rivers are one thing but there's something about lakes yes. I don't even like swimming in them I find them slightly <laughs> sinister and I think it's that Just sense that it's static, static. Yeah. and what's in there is staying down there and you can't necessarily reach it mm. whereas rivers are kind of always turning things over and that potential of what you might find I find very thrilling so it's, it's movement it's, it's moving water yeah I think yeah. that's the Compulsion. <laughs> um, well, let's move on um, from that to, to, to time because both of you have um, these massively different scales of time, from geological to the historical to the personal, whether it's um, um, a one midsummer's week or um, you know, the, the year that you spent really focusing and concentrating on the beach and the, and the moments as, as you end your book in time travel. 
chapter mm. Mm. coming back to the present moment this particular sense of yes I think I mean at some at one point in the book I say that a beach can be like a time machine you know that sense especially a beach like that where um, it, the the sands are moved you know there, there are these enormous kind of changes to the topography of the beach uh, caused by the by tides and weather and and wind and so if you go down there after a storm the whole the whole look of the beach can be changed and of course when that happens things are revealed which were hidden before so there's something about the capacity of the sand to to sort of hide things and reveal them which means that if you're in the right place at the right time something very ancient can come to the surface uh, particularly that's true of these footprints which are which are laid down in prehistoric mud and they've been covered um, by sand and by sand dunes and now the, co- the, the, the shore is being eaten away and it's being gradually revealed and you can go and see these prints and you can put your own foot inside one of these prints but then the next tide comes in and that's it, it's destroyed forever so it's also, it's, it's about this extraordinary sense of the passage of time that you can have and your own very tiny place in that but also about how ephemeral um, things are too because the tide will just indiscriminately wash the lot away however precious it might be um, mm. I think that's yeah, uh, uh, particularly that with the footprints and the, uh, the idea of is it temporary archaeology because we think ephemeral about ephemeral, ephemeral, ephemeral archaeology, archaeology which is such a lovely phrase yeah. Yeah. because we think about archaeology being about fossils and being given and mantel mm. this, this yes. amazing um, collection but, but yeah. yes it's a very unusual experience of the past I think the thing I was really so as I was thinking about the book I had some stories that I of things that I knew had been in the river and that I wanted to sort of draw out and and look at and one of those was the Battle of Lewis I knew that all these different accounts about armoured bodies being found there and what I particularly became fascinated by was how slippery those stories started to become as I looked closer that they Retreated. They changed. There were different sources. I'd start to pull apart a source and realise it was fake, and there'd be another source underneath. And the other, the other find was obviously Virginia Woolf's body. That there's this body of a woman in a fur coat, and it turns out to be Woolf, and it's it's taken from the water. And what this this has only just happened. But what's interesting about that is I sort of felt like I'd locked my story. I'd found a source that I believed in, and I I put it in the book. And very recently I got a letter from a man saying, um, well, actually, um, it was to my publishers. I, I, I liked Olivia Lang's book, but actually there was an error on the page, whatever it is. Um, that isn't what happened with Virginia's Wolf's body. And the reason I know is because I was the boy that found it, which is just completely staggering. So this child who'd been evacuated from London was in Lewis with a few friends. He said it wasn't two girls and two boys. There was there was four four of us four boys and we um, were down by the river and we were throwing stones at this sort of squishy object and then we suddenly realised it wasn't a rotten log at all it was it was a woman and he, the other thing he said was that they went to the signal signal keeper signal officer's cottage and the officer said what nonsense I don't believe you at all and so they really had to convince them that and that capacity for a story to emerge. And for a story to change like that seems to me very much that sort of sea change effect of stories that are involved in water. It seemed exactly the sort of thing that I'd already been looking at. Mm. It's 
quite eerie. As, as you were walking, how much did you know about the, the, the stories already as you were seeing at the Battle of Lewis? Some I knew very well, and some it was more of a later process of uncovering. So Wolf I was pretty familiar with. Some of the Battle of Lewis stuff I didn't know, and a lot about... I had this idea that it was a very fixed landscape and discovering how much the landscape had been changed and man-made. And that, that idea, which I think comes up in your book a lot as well, that things we think are natural and things we think are, are man-made are often much more complexly entwined than we tend to think or than they tend to look to the sort of innocent eye. Mm-hmm. And I found that really exciting as well. This, this, I suppose, that would relate to the changes in beauty, the, the, say, the tobacco dumping. Mm, that's exactly yeah, what I was thinking yeah. of, the tobacco story. Yes, yes. Um, well, I suppose from Virginia Woolf's body, we could um, um, move on to um, slightly dodgy territory, but, but, but the idea of women and water, and I know I, I, I said this a few moments ago, women and water, and it's all <laughs> a bit too simplistic to say that there's a natural affinity there, but it could be interesting to talk about different ways in which men and women approach the water with with men you think um it, it seems that the relationship is, is often mediated by boats and fishing and objects but with women that i think we, it would um it seems to fit to talk about submersion and immersion ideas of I think the thing i'm tentative about it as well but one of the things i think is interesting with that is how much wolf evidently used her relationships and experiences of water as ways of approaching the kind of writing she wanted to do that there was a fluidity I mean you see it most clearly in the waves but I think it's I think it's fair to say that it's something that is repeated in a lot of her books that she's using those sort of techniques of overlapping of dissolving mm. as ways of approaching a sort of modernism mm. but whether women do that because they're women I'm not no. so sure about no. <laughs> No, it's hard to generalise in that way. I mean, I'm only thinking that perhaps men like to have something to, you know, to drive, um, and you know, perhaps women don't mind so much about that. And also, perhaps perhaps men and women swim in different ways when they do get into the water. You know, men like to get from A to B, and they like to do it fast. But but the kind of swimming, a lot of the kind of swimming that you're talking about in your book is more about just getting into the water and just sort of enjoying Lolling. it for its own sake, um, rather yeah. than. You know, the punishing ex- actually that's interesting because mm. I notice in Robert McFarlane's books yeah. and he's a friend of mine but I, nonetheless I do notice that if there's some freezing cold water he'll leap into yeah. it and I'm like oh god that sounds so ghastly but you do quite well that well but I do it when it's warm and pleasurable and yeah. you know I'm very much about the sort of pleasure of it yeah but, um, but with Wolf and the, and the flowing of, of, of Atlantis topics I think you both do that as, as, as well I mean it, 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 you'll flow from one thing into another there are digressions and then you come back to so do you, are you conscious of, of um, writing in that way that, yes. that certainly was very much part of my project if you like in, in, in doing this and writing this book it was for me it was all about finding out about things so I was starting from you know quite a quite a low base of knowledge about most of the things that I write about here I knew the place very well although there's a limit to how well you can know a place like that because of the changeability of it that I've already mentioned. But I had to, I had to find out most of the things that I that I talk about with seeming authority in the book, and um, <laughs> and that led me often into some very sort of unexpected places, which were a very long way away from the beach where I started. And I think that that was the appeal of it for me. Part of a very big part of the appeal of it was 
was being able to be very eclectic in the kind of subject matter and sources that I drew on, um, even if it took me into some, into some very strange and unexpected corners of the, of the world. And the sea seems to bring the whole world to you, absolutely. It's amazing how far you're in. Yes, yes. I mean, lots of, lots of, sort of, a lot of the travelling was, was not physical travelling for me, although some of it was. But uh, once you start to trace the kind of journeys that these objects have, have taken, you know, it, it, the distances can be vast, both the temporal distances and the, and the spatial distances that these things have travelled. And, and what is um, perhaps wonderful and exciting about that is that although they've come from all over the world and from different points in history, they all end up together. So you'll often find things tangled together in the strand line. You know, a Roman coin could be tangled up with bits of plastic and seaweed and, you know, and everything's equal in the, in the strand line. There's no discrimination between them, which is, of course, I suppose what the appeal of beachcombing is, that if you, if you poke around in that unprepossessing-looking line of seaweed, you might find something marvellous. But also that sense that, which really struck me from your book... That nothing's going to go anywhere else. It, if there's some plastic there, it will go back into the water, and it will keep doing this sort of restless mm. travelling. And that really, you know, I like to think that I'm quite environmentally aware, but there was something quite shocking about just how mm. sort of viscerally you got that across. Mm. Yes, it's impossible really to to write about the shore without getting into this territory, without thinking particularly about plastic, which just. Mm. because it doesn't just simply break down quickly and degrade and disappear it just goes on being sort of shuffled around and um, a very shocking moment in the book is when I'd, I, I had um, been down on the beach and seen there was a, an exceptionally large amount of rubble and very varied and I came down the next day and there'd been a very high tide and the beach was absolutely clean it had all gone. All those things I'd been looking at yesterday and thought I would come back and have another look at, just gone. And of course it's just been swallowed again and it will be sort of spat out somewhere else. And, and it really is fairly horrific to think about what we're doing when we throw plastic away because there actually isn't anywhere to throw it away. You know, that's where it ends up and that's where it stays. So that was the, the sort of less enjoyable but equally important perhaps the most important piece of learning that I that I had in, in writing the book but because it's so interwoven with all the natural finds it doesn't ever come across as a kind of pecturing, there, there was something that just made it, um, it just felt like it was contextualised in a very different way which I really liked mm. it feels as though it comes out of a love of nature mm. but a sort of interest as well, yes. the interest in mm-hmm where things come from and where things go to rather than the just kind of let's just stop this discussion with it's bad it, you sort of yes I mean there's no point in, in getting preachy is there when you're writing about this because if yes. you, you are just preaching to the converted I mean the kind of people who are going to read these books you know already interested in landscape and they're interested in nature and they already know this but, but I suppose these things do bear saying again mm. and the challenge is to say them in a different way or to give a different view onto that very familiar subject mm. I think that great Pacific garbage patch is a terrifying <laughs> image which is, is twice the size of Texas 
Allegedly. I have never been there, but... Um, I feel like you should go and write about yes, it. Perhaps, but I think it's probably quite difficult to go, actually. To get um, to it. To, to, see, to see the scale of it. You would only be able to see the scale of it, really, from the air, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably too remote to go by helicopter. Not so I'm planning to, anyway. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Just in case it would take it sail through it. <laughs> yes. um, but but let's, let's go to the, um, the beach combings and the idea of collecting, but particularly also, I think, collecting language. Um, and collecting words almost as if they're artefacts. I think you both and we both did um, it in our readings, didn't we? Yes, I noticed yeah, that we both yeah, did our exactly. readings. But because it's, it's, it's there a lot, you have these um, lists of, of, of names for things, particularly um, whether it's plants or, or sharks or, or anything like this. And um, um, yeah, you seem to delight in it. So. I think that I trained as a herbalist, so that was that was a sort of body of knowledge that I had. Although it's eroding terrifyingly fast um, but that just love of the sort of quiddity of names of objects and names of plants and the, again it's a sort of history as well, that it, it plunges us back into a time when those words were meaningful when they were used by an awful lot of people rather than sort of rarefied and pulled out of your Collins, whatever it is book um, but I, I find such sort of great pleasure yeah. In the, there's one point where I say it's a botanist sweet shop and I really feel like a hedgerow you know you can look at it and see well there's some flowers or you can start to identify and realise that kind of incredible linguistic richness and visual richness of what, what's going on they absolutely go together mm. the yes the richness of nature really yeah I think they, they sort of enrich each language. other yeah mm. yes yeah. Yeah, so very much the same for me I mean I think it's part of also part of my um habit and method as a poet yes. to think about the names of things, the words for things. You know, this is sort of quite deeply mm. um, bred in me somehow in my in my poetry writing. So I, I felt myself naturally drawn in that direction. There's a very long list of the names of sharks with all, all endangered in the book and, and that they, they become stranger and weirder and funnier and, and more and more bizarre and you start thinking about the act of naming what mm. it would be like to to have come up with one of these names and I also like what you were saying Olivia about the, the the names of things which we've more or less lost or which we can only find out by going to reference books now but which were in fact very Encouraging. common and they were often they often reflected something about the way people uh, used those used those resources so um, or, or something that they noticed about the way this plant they're often jokey bit of seaweed behaved mm. so there's a there's a kind of seaweed called the oyster thief which has got a sort of gas bladder on it and um, it can lift something very light off the off the seabed um, and there's another one called the poor man's weather glass which uh, presumably people used to hang up and and it would, I don't know, how useful is it that if the bit of seaweed's gone damp, you know it's raining? But anyway, I'm sure there was something more to it than that that I haven't quite grasped. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
but those names clearly, you know, they meant something. They're, they're narratives, actually. They're little narratives encapsulated in, in two or three words. And it's, it's wonderful to rediscover them. It makes you look at the, the seaweed itself, the plant itself, with mm. new eyes, I think. And I think it makes it more precious as well, because you're right, often we're looking at them because they're imperiled, and there's something about the, the act of naming, the attention that naming draws to, to something that makes you take it more seriously, gives mm. it more weight... I think it's very important. Yeah. I mean, you both use etymologies quite a lot as well, which I think also has a sense of narrative but in the, the history of landscape and the history of things changing is inscribed in the history of language and the way mm. it changes. Mm. And how, how physical the names of things often are. Mm-hmm. That when I'm talking about the, the river ooze being called ooze. Yes, yes. And that's our word ooze, and it's called ooze because it oozes through this landscape. And you know, when you start sort of seeing that, things mm-hmm. become very sort of I, pleasurable. You know, I didn't actually know how it was pronounced before, but I was wondering if it was owls. <laughs> but I'm never going to get it now. Yeah, ooze. no, it li- it's literally that was yeah. the word that our ooze comes from. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, cool. Um, I think, Olivia, you uh, mentioned you want to talk about ghosts. um, Both of you, um, you're working alone a lot of the time, um, but in both of your books, um, your landscapes are people, so they're they're full of um, not just the people who you meet along the way, or your companions or friends or family, but also other writers. um, Of course, Wolf, but um, other stories as well, Kenneth Graham. And I think that's the other thing that that kind of if you're making these sort of slow dives through time, which I think we both are, it's not just the physical landscape that you're encountering. It is inevitably going to be people of one kind or another. And I think that was one of the real pleasures of this journey in terms of sort of creating, but not just the, the physical journey, was the people I turned up. And of those, I mean, Virginia Woolf, certainly, but Leonard Woolf, who I really didn't know that much about and who really became such a sort of hero of the book almost and and Gideon Mantell who was one of the first um, he discovered the Iguanodon and he was very much a sort of outsider scientist who very much wanted to be an insider scientist and these two sort of slightly marginalised keenly intelligent men who were very interested in time and civilization and history and how we account for ourselves, how we make sense of ourselves, they were very much... You get a sort of sense of fellow feeling, I think, of, the, of these sort of people who are thinking around similar subjects. And it was, really, it was really one of the pleasures of the book to sort of draw them out a little bit. Yeah, that was my, that was my mm. sense of it. I suppose the, the, the bit of coast that I'm writing about is different in the sense that it's actually as far as I know, not really associated with any um, literary figures apart from Beryl Bainbridge, <laughs> who, who used to play there a lot as a Oh, child. and that's the brilliant thing with her with the, the she used dog. To, she had a dog, which was a, a piece of driftwood that she attached to a piece attached a piece of string to, and she would and she had another piece of driftwood which she used as a gun, and she just sort of rampaged about at Ainsdale on her own. With her wearing dog. her brother's trousers. She was wearing her brother's trousers. And she called the driftwood dog Blaze. It's wonderful that she had a name for it. And she she just sort of, you know, took the dog out and shot at things. And uh, but, but apart from Beryl Bainbridge, it's not a it's actually not a really a famous bit of coast. It's rather a 
rather a neglected bit of coast actually um, and I suppose that was that was a big part of my interest in writing about it you know because um, it was about wanting to wanting to look at it anyway even though it doesn't look very prepossessing you've got Liverpool to the south Blackpool to the north it's not an unspoilt place and it's not pretty in the conventional sense as uh, perhaps parts of Cornwall are or you know, other, other parts of our coast and um, so the, the characters that who, who I encounter well the main, the main characters I encounter on the beach are the sort of ghosts of those Neolithic people actually who are, who are absolutely unknown, you know, to the... They're completely anonymous, and they... Mm. So little is known about their lives and, and what they were like, and, and it's... There's this, all this detective work that has gone on to just to try and understand something about what they were doing there, you know, that they were living this hunter-gatherer lifestyle long after that had, had sort of died out in other places because there were rich pickings there for them. There were red deer that they could hunt, and there were um, shellfish and so on. And and they they were all around me at certain times. I did feel the presence of these very distant predecessors there. But of course, you have no names. You have you have almost nothing to go on. Um, but the other the the other sort of characters who I encounter in the book tend not to be located on the beach, but just people I turn up by following some kind of interesting trail about something I've found and, and beginning to unravel its history or its or how we've understood it. Mm. And writers as well, I mean, even if not local writers, so there's only yes. Kathleen Jamie. Yes, I often mm. saw, Kathleen Jamie certainly, and I often saw um, things and places through the lens of poetry, you know, poems I knew. So when I discovered this very strange marine creature called a sea mouse um, I was delighted to discover that Amy Clampett had written a poem called Sea Mouse that just happened to really sort of coincide with how it had felt for me to to discover this weird creature that must surely be a one-off there couldn't be another one like it um, so I, I you know certainly used that lens of poetry to look at, at the objects um, Should we take some audience questions? While you're all thinking about it and getting your hands ready to raise, um, but, um, so it sort of brings us on to, um, to back to poetry. And, and sort of next thing I wanted to ask was, um, was, it, was how how this book feels to you in relation to your poetry, and whether it was, because of course the, the two seem to come from the same sources and you know, the same inspirations. Yes, I mean, in a way, it did develop out of my poetry. I had. This place had, had got into the poems for some time before I came to think about writing this book. Even when I didn't think I was writing about this place, it, it sort of came in anyway as a kind of setting or a backdrop. Because I was walking there so much, and, and uh, I think walking is an activity for me anyway where poems often begin. Um, so, so it was just seeping into the poems and, and the things that I found were coming into the poems. And then I... At, at, at some point I thought wow this is all very well but actually these things are you know I'm using them in a sense they're kind of at the service of the poems and I want to spend some time really looking at them and really mm. really finding out about them um, so it was a very it was, a, it was the same sources but a very different approach mm. where I knew that um, I couldn't rely on the poets 
usual trick of, if you don't know it, make it up. You know, um, poetic license wasn't going to be available to me in the same way, and I was going to have to really do the research and really um, be quite rigorous in making sure that that I was looking properly and um, asking the right questions about these things. So it was a very different kind of activity for me. And did it become clear quickly which objects and which discoveries were going to be part of the book? Were there sort of ones that didn't make the grade? The really boring one. <laughs> really boring. Well, no, the more boring, the better in a well, way, I think. Because you seem to be so good at sort of digging down and finding the interesting things. I really wanted to look at things... I wanted to pay the same kind of attention to things, whether they were, you know, um, rather expected or predictable beach finds like seaweed and jellyfish or, or whether they were real surprises I, I wanted to look at them equally closely again I think that perhaps partly comes from from poetry you know that that sort of habit of looking at the the things that are not usually looked at and that we usually perhaps walk past or or don't think are very interesting but of course once you start to look they are um, and that sort of democracy of attention as well, yes. I think, is just such yes. a pleasing Well, I think quality. that's also present in your book. Mm. The, the desire to look at things that aren't. And with mine, it's very much about neglected landscapes and mm. landscapes that we might think are sort of, here's the pretty one and here's the spoiled one, whereas I'm very interested in those sort of border landscapes, supermarket car parks and those sort of things and what kind of lives go on in them, which is interesting in that Edgelands came out the same, around the same time. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously that sort of desire for us to start looking at those sort of less favoured landscapes yeah. which I think We're is great yes, yes yes. I mean Richard Maybe is obviously the one who's yeah. really sort of drawn us all in that direction but yeah that's a good trend um, let's see who would like to join in the discussion Matthew there's a right. thank you um, a friend of mine, a Croatian friend of mine, said to me recently, um, in your country, he says it on a kind of almost like an insult with in your country, nature writing is very sexy. <laughs> and I wondered, I mean, taking out the facetiousness in that comment, whether you detect uh, a rise in interest in nature writing and whether there's more interest in nature writing and, and writing about nature writers as well than perhaps there was five or ten years ago. Mm, I think it's become an absolute sort of boom. And I think that's a fabulous thing and I think it's very much you know we've become much more environmentally literate we're very interested in our food all those sorts of things so I think there's an audience for it but I think also it's just that sense for writers that you want what for a while it was so unfashionable it was unthinkable that there'd be this sort of sudden renaissance and that that would be the hip thing to be writing about. So I think it became this area that a lot of people all at the same time thought, oh, I'm going to have a poke around in there. That when something gets neglected for long enough, it suddenly sort of becomes this interesting thicket that you want to penetrate, to use an appropriately sexy word, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But that would be my my sense of that. I I think that... um, I, I found myself in this in this territory of nature writing accidentally really when I when I first thought of writing the book I didn't even use the phrase nature writing in my head or landscape writing I didn't know 
I hadn't even thought about how um, how that how it might be described. It was a book about things. It was a book about place. Um, however, of course, I've learned as I've gone along, and I've found myself, you know, in this in this territory, and found that actually I have I have already loved many of the books that that have that have sort of gone before, particularly Roger Deakin, his book Waterlogged, which was a a huge influence on me just in in making me think that it was something that I might be able to do because he had this uh, there's this great sort of eclecticism in that book you know that he will write about the uh, obvious sort of natural aspects of whatever place he's in but at the same time he's not afraid to um, call in his reminiscences about I spy books that he had when he was a boy and you know ticking off the um, species of birds that he spotted and scoring points according to rarity value and, and, and to, to take from that a kind of, or to make out of that uh, a point about what's happened to um, the diversity of species of birds that we have, some of them that were thought very common a generation ago have disappeared so he, he sort of drew on all these sources from all over the place which made me think this is exciting, this is something I'd like to do and maybe maybe that's something that is perhaps a bit distinctive about this flowering of interest in nature writing, that perhaps it is more eclectic in that way mm. and um, you know, perhaps the writers who are working in this area are bringing a different kind of sense of what's allowed in this, in this sort of book mm. Do you think that's I think it's true? very different from American nature writing, landscape writing as well I think there's a very um, British sort of nuttiness about it, that we are sort of interested in crannies and interested in sort of and I suppose it's a smaller country anyway but the kind of poking around in hedgerows and seeing what you can eat and taking it home and all of all of that sort of stuff it's it's so sort of getting your hands dirty I think it's it's a very um, pleasurable thing very sexy <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, you sort of alluded to it, I think, both of you. I, I always wonder about nature writing, if it's always actually trying to be something else. And when nature writers talk about the present, they're really talking about the past. And when they're describing nature, they're really writing autobiography. I just wondered if you find it a rather shifting genre in that sense. What do you mean they're writing, when they're writing about nature, they're writing autobiography? Sorry, writing what? What do you mean about when they're writing about nature, they're actually writing... Well, if you're, if you're writing about nature, you're writing about um, a sort of um, distinctive other, aren't mm. you, which is not you. Mm. But the, I mean, you are, one is. And, but you're using a medium to write about it, which by definition marks out your difference from what you're describing, because it's a human form of communication. Mm. So this is odd standoff in nature writing... I sometimes think, between the sort of consciousness that's coming to terms with it, which at the same time marks off a total distinction between the person doing the writing and what's being written about. And I wondered if that was one of the reasons why it seems such a, an interestingly sort of multifaceted genre, whereas it is so often, you know, I'm thinking of Henry Williamson, who, who's sort of my area, who writes endlessly about nature, and the more he writes about nature, the more he actually is writing about himself 
And I wondered if you think that sort of autobiography is always in there somewhere. You know? I think, I think, particularly with people like Henry Williamson and that generation, that there's often an awful lot of melancholy and loss and nostalgia and sense of rupture and sense of trying to heal something. And I suspect that that comes across in the nature writing of that era. I think with our era, the rupture is very different in that it's much more environmental. But the, the desire to write about nature, I think you're right, it doesn't often come from a place of already feeling part of it. It comes from a sense of estrangement, needing to get closer and writing yourself back into the fabric of it. That would be my my sense of it. And I think that maybe accounts for those sort of little ripples that you get of anxiety about how close up you can get, sense of being, sense of not knowing how to comport yourself in the environment, which is often there, I think, in nature writing. That, but yeah, I'll think about that more because it feels like that sort of opens something up that I haven't totally mm-hmm. looked at. Yeah, I'm not sure I have much to add to that really, except that I think that there is an issue when you start to write about place and um, nature uh, about how how much you are present in what you write. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, I felt it very strongly, and I felt it very difficult to begin with to find. Um, the, the right place you know to uh, of course you know you're looking at something on the beach your shadow always falls over it but uh, I wanted all the time actually to withdraw and to really write about the things the place um, but I think in the end you know I look at the book and I think yeah but I, I haven't really done that it's very much a personal view it's very much a journey and a sort of odyssey you know it takes place over a year and it's a year of my life and I I go there and I go there again and each time I you know, build on what I learnt last time so um, it, you, you can't you know, you can't sort of be absent But then I don't think that's a bad thing because I think that pretense of objectivity has got us into a bad sort of separation mm. from the natural world and actually mm. the, the, you, the human you engaging with mm. this place is very, it's very touching I found it very touching Um, I haven't read your books yet, but um, I will. <laughs> With anticipation, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, what, what you've described, I think, is something that I really recognise. And I think that um, perhaps a lot of people do, because the things that you've done are the things that a lot of us do anyway. Mm. And I think the sense of... Um, perhaps you could comment on this. I think there's a sense that you describe of um, noticing things but also a sense of searching for something and the idea that something is um, intended or you're intending something but also something is um, brought to you by serendipity, Mm -hmm. by accident is really fascinating and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that or, or if you recognise what I'm saying I, I think perhaps I do or at least I have a take on what you're saying um, I think with things you find on a beach there is this odd uh, thing that happens when you when you go repeatedly to the same beach and look at things you, you become 
incredibly sensitised. You, you, you notice things that you would previously have walked past. I, it got to the point where if I went to the beach, I, I knew I would find something interesting. There was no question about, you know, oh, I wonder what they'll be today. I just knew there would be something. And eventually, um, I actually began to feel that it was sending me slightly mad <laughs> because I, some, I began to feel that, that things were being delivered to me. And it really does sound odd, but I found a, I found a China cup from a Cunard liner and, you know, it was just there. It was just lying there waiting for me to find it and that felt slightly odd. And then I had this very bizarre experience of, of um, picking around on the, in the strand line and finding lots of bottles and thinking, oh, I'd love to find a message in a bottle. That's the one thing. Oh, there's one. <laughs> Um, and it, it, it started to feel... Wait, it was worse than that, though, wasn't it? Well, then, because, yes, because five minutes later I found another one. Um, so it's, it started to feel as though my mental health was slightly threatened by this activity. And, you know, I'm not sorry to have, to have finished looking in that very intense way. I'm not sure whether that's really what you meant, but it's a take on what you said. I don't know if I have anything to add to it apart from that, that I did have that feeling and that I think looking is so much its own reward as well. No, I do have something to add to it. I think one of the things that was very important to me in, in sort of creating this idea was that I wanted it to be something that was incredibly accessible and a very, very ordinary Environment. I didn't want to be somewhere that was special. I didn't want to be somewhere that was a wilderness, which I think is a very troubling term anyway. I wanted it to be a bit of land, the like of which all of us have access to. And that what I wanted to do was see how sharp a lens you could apply to that ordinary place and what happened if you did. And I think that's a very similar sort of thing that you've been doing with yours, is just... Well, what happens if you keep looking and looking? What what sort of treasures come up? And the treasures are so tiny and yet so heartening and so um, affirming and connecting. So I think, yeah, I, I feel like that was really a big part of it. Thank you. Um, your, yeah, your talk just made me think of... Uh, a time when I was staying on a, a Greek island um, in the Aegean, Amorgos, and uh, there was a beach which was called a paradise beach, and sometimes it, it was like a paradise beach, incredible colours and sort of pink mountains and completely empty and uh, silver sand and just, and just amazingly beautiful. And then if the wind was coming from the northerly direction terrible sort of scrim of unbreakable things mm-hmm. and um, I just was very struck by well two things really, the, the difference of a landscape depending on the weather and the time of day, the incredible difference between the, how the weather could affect it and also the effect of wind and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that about that and how wind affects water I don't know about how wind affects water but the thing about changing weather I wrote a lot about um, I get light-induced migraines occasionally, and I walked in a heat wave, <laughs> and it's all chalk, the landscape that I was walking through, so you're just getting that kind of bright, white, slamming light. 
and that um, well partly it makes things seem very sort of odd and otherworldly and little kind of flickers and all of that sort of thing but also just how it affects your mood the very and because I was on my own for a week just with with nothing to sort of cushion any of those I became incredibly aware as I think you do even after an hour on your own in, in a landscape I think you become incredibly sensitised very fast but those little fluctuations would really alter my mood would also help suddenly everything seemed very sinister and moments later charmed totally totally mm-hmm. wonderful but it it was a combination between the sort of cast of a landscape. There were definitely bits that if I went back to, I think they'd still be sinister. But some of them very much an aspect of whether that things would change quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think you're right that coastal landscapes are just... They're at the mercy of weather, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, as well as the beach itself, when I was walking, there's a, there's a huge system of sand dunes there, um, which, which shift... And again, you know, things become exposed, and that can be that can be pretty sinister. So you quite often get bodies, you know, suddenly emerging out of the sand dunes, which people have found. because because you know, if you want to dispose of a body quickly, it's probably quite tempting to think that it's worth driving out there because it's very easy to dig, and so you know, you you, you dig and you you know can quite quickly deal with this under cover of darkness, and then that's it over. But you know, that shows an incredible ignorance of of how sand dunes work and of how the wind works and what it does to sand because there are enormous shifts that happen I mean it's enough to have um, swallowed up whole villages in the past and you know fairly regularly there'll be a a body emerges out of the sand dunes so um, it it sort of literally makes a place more sinister as as, as well as making it feel different Um, I suppose this is more a question for uh, Jean rather than Olivia, although I'd like to hear your views on it. There's this amazing film by this guy called Andrew Cotting where he goes round the entire coast of the UK with his um, daughter and his mum, who's really elderly, and basically they they film all of the things that they see and he basically puts forward that around the coast of England especially all of the eccentricities of English life are more dominant than they are inland. <laughs> and um, there's sort of wonderful ways that he kind of puts that forward. And, um, but I was just wondering if, if uh, uh, Jean, that was something that you experienced sort of working along the coast and well, Olivia yourself, something, you know, whether you find... Well, I live on of, the coast. Right, well, there you go. I've lived on the coast for a long time. Is he more eccentric? <laughs> I, I actually... I think there's some truth in that and certainly places like Dungeness where people are really living Mm. in a very exposed way right on the coast and there's a lot of sort of Union Jacks in the garden a lot of very not just the Derek Charmin garden but just ordinary gardens very eccentric and I think there's a liberation maybe about being out in this landscape but also I think it is quite fearful and so you want to sort of assert your identity against it maybe I mean I suppose historically particularly it's been quite tough to live in some of these coastal places you've had to adapt you've had to live rather differently from people who have the shelter of living in land and maybe it's something to do with that I certainly um, I as I as I said I was not I don't come from 
I don't come from around here, as they as they like to say, um, in that part of the world. And um, I was a blow-in. And uh, I, I thought that some of the local attitudes towards um, the sea, the coast, were really odd. You know, so they would build, uh, they built a, a huge new complex of shops and cinemas and cafes, and they built it all with its back to the sea. <laughs> there wasn't a single balcony or cafe or doors opening to look at the view it was all huddled away from the sea and that struck me as really odd I know it gets very windy and I know you know but not to not to want to open to that space seemed very strange to me um, I'd love to see that film there. it sounds fabulous <laughs> I was just going to ask if either of you keep things like do you collect stuff that you pick up when you're going to these places or do you take lots of photographs or anything like that I collect stones occasionally didn't Ian McEwen get into terrible trouble by confessing just that <laughs> I never collect anything ever <laughs> um I take a lot of photos. Part of my working method is I, I write almost constantly in field notebooks, but I take a lot of photos as well so that I can sort of double-check on things that I've lost. But, yeah, I, I pick up bits and bobs and my room's full of um, <clears throat> just things. <laughs> yeah, I've certainly brought... I've, I've moved to London now and I've brought some of the things that come with me, the most special finds or the ones that I could carry. So I have the Kunar teacup and I have a slab of that prehistoric mud sadly not with a footprint in it but nevertheless I have it and a chunk of the spent tobacco waste that turns up on the beach and you know a row of these things sort of lined up on my mantelpiece so they, they, they're souvenirs as much as anything I don't think I sort of poured over them while I was writing but they're, they're kind of precious in, you know in that way as reminders of, of that place for me having moved away from it Um, I'm interested in the relationship between your um, prose and poetry and because it is quite unusual for a poet to step back and spend time maybe you know on the piece of work which by the way I haven't read yet but look forward to and I just wondered um, two things really uh, while you were writing because that's over a long period of time and you may have answered it in the book so apologies if that's the case um, what what effect that had on your poetry writing and whether you found you were inspired to write more or how that book may well feed into or lead you, you know, you know develop your own um, poetic vision, really. That, that was really what I wanted to ask. And also, Olivia, whether you were ever... Um, again, I haven't read the book, but we have got a copy at home, so I intend to... Um, whether you were ever moved to perhaps write poetry, you know, on the journey. That's really... Okay. Well, the... Um, it is a very different sort of project, but I think that there are more and more poets doing this, actually, particularly moving into writing about nature and landscape. Mm -hmm. So there's Kathleen Jamie, there's Paul Farley, Michael yeah. Simmons-Roberts. Um, it's, it's not as unusual as perhaps once it was. To, to branch out into this kind of writing. Um, for me, it was a development from 
things I'd been writing about in poems, as I said. So um, I think that it probably won't feed into any poems in the future, not directly in that sense of subject matter. And in fact, while I was writing it, I, I found it very difficult to write poems. I obviously am not as good at multitasking as I like to think I am. I, I think it required such a, such a change of approach, you know, particularly this, in, in the most obvious way, this business of um, writing something more extended um, when, when all my sort of training and, and, and habits were in concision, you know, and cutting the thing back and cutting it back. So my first sort of attempts at drafts of these chapters were terrible. They were like um, they were like dried soup, you know. <laughs> it needs to have water added to make it into the thing. And um, I found that while I was writing, you know, having having sort of begun to find my way into writing in that more extended way, uh, it was difficult then to to sort of switch to to going back to having to think about the smallness of the space you've got to work in in a poem. Well, I'm, I'm not a poet at all, but actually the book I'm writing now, which is about alcohol and writers and the relationships between them, it has several, half the cast of poets, so John Berryman, Raymond Carver um, and Frank O'Hara. And actually, I don't know whether it's because I've been so sort of immersed in their work, but I did find that I was using very bad poetry as a way of sort of working through ideas, pulling pulling images together. It's not something that will ever go any further than <laughs> some very deeply buried file on my laptop. But it was it was interesting that that sort of became a way of working with ideas when it felt like I wasn't quite ready to sort of lay them down into chapters. I think moving on to the next book and the next project is, a, is, a, is the right place to, to end. To the future. Um, to the future, exactly. <laughs> um, but right now, the two books are both here at Tula River and Strand, so if you haven't read them, they're both wonderful, very beautiful. Um, come and buy them. And um, please join me in a very huge thank you to Olivia Lack and Jean Spratland for being fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.